Jewish TV channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to a special edition of Talking Point. We're very glad to welcome back one of our first ever guests to the show from our inaugural edition back in January. Dr. Naya Lecht originally joined us as an expert on Jewish education and is someone I consider a teacher's teacher. Her passion for Jewish education continues to develop, and she's back with us today to discuss her latest venture as education editor for White Rose Magazine. White Rose is a digital magazine that gets its name from a group of college students who made the daring decision to be the voice of sanity while living during the Nazi regime. Those students decided that truth needed to be expressed even as they knew the price to be paid for speaking out against the systemic pressure to be silent. These brave heroes, whose story inspired the 2021 launch of White Rose Magazine by Karen Lerman Block, are the inspirations behind this initiative today. In today's world, it's easy to get distracted by the chaos and noise, and this is precisely where magazines such as White Rose, whose focus is to reclaim truth, reason, and beauty, is something truly noble and daring. The latest special issue of White Rose Magazine, which we're featuring today, was put together by Nyalette and focuses exclusively on education. I'd like to once again welcome Naya back to our show and dive right in. Welcome, Naya. Good to have you back. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be back. I love that you are taking on the issue of education. Again, it's my passion. I believe education is sacred, and I believe that White Rose Magazine is really a special, uh, it's a special place where writers of, of of all diverse types of thinking and uh, just diverse people come together and under a shared goal. And, you know, this goal is to reclaim, as you said, truth, reason, beauty. I mean, in, in our world today, this is, this is a rarity. And so for me, I'm, I'm just really excited to be back and to, to discuss education. I'm not so much in the classroom today, but really um, exploring the classroom rather, um, from different perspectives and, and the contributors to this issue. So thank you. Excellent. Well, Naya, when we last spoke, we took a pretty deep dive into the miseducation of American Jewry. And I'm glad we're back discussing education, but this time your project with White Rose is a lot more expansive. Can you discuss just a little bit about the origins of this issue, why you chose to expand beyond Jewish education and how did you go about choosing the essays that you featured in this issue? Because you got to choose, right? Yeah. So basically, as I was creating curriculum, but more importantly, really on the ground with students, American Jewish students, um, and predominantly I was teaching Jewish history and Zionism and how to combat anti-Semitism, I started doing this about five years professionally. And about five years ago, it was pretty simple in the sense that Jewish students, American Jewish students, were eager to, to hear about, you know, the truth. Um, and, and they wanted um, to gain knowledge and they wanted facts. And then I noticed a very alarming trend in such a short period of time, so right, five years. I noticed that what brought students before, which is, you know, thirst for knowledge, thirst for truth, was all of a sudden people were triggered by facts or triggered by truth and what substituted truth was narrative and my personal truth and there was really no such thing as the truth and what really alarmed me is that yes i could teach people uh, students of all ages about jewish history but 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 really the deeper issue is what does our civilization today value you know do they, what, why do they value narrative over truth? And, and why, is there, why is there an assault on truth? And so in this particular issue, I wanted to bring together people who both spent time on the ground in classrooms, uh, K through 12, and also in um, higher education in the, uh, in the universities, who would share their personal stories of this, as I say, evolution or you know, devolution in many ways, 
And then I brought to people who were analyzing the situation, um, such as uh, Arthur Wilner, he discussed the assault on freedom of speech uh, at the university. And these things, they go kind of hand in hand. Um, they're, not, uh, they're, they're not disparate. They, they, they're part of a, a bigger issue and a bigger problem um, that's kind of this undercurrent in our society, which is how are people learning? Why, are, why, why is truth such a, um, such a problem? So that's why I wanted to explore the issue of education in this particular issue. Now, your lead essay, The Renaissance of Truth, Beauty, and Virtue, describes many of the problems within today's classroom. Can you summarize some of these problems for our listeners today? Sure. So, as I, you know, as I was putting together this issue, uh, Karen, who's the editor-in-chief, suggested that I write a lead essay. Uh, and this lead essay really would summarize uh, the, con- the contributions made by the different authors. And as I sat down um, to write about what you described, the, the problem, I couldn't help but remember that one of the, I mean, there are many reasons why I went myself into education, but one of my inspirations comes from an actually a film called The Dead Poets Society. I don't know if you've seen it. I'm sure oh, you yeah. have. Definitely. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know if the, uh, our listeners today or your listeners can hear, um, have seen it, but... It stars Robin Williams, and it, it, it's a, an amazing film, and amazing in the sense that as I sat down to write this lead essay, I recalled that one of my inspirations to go into teaching or education was the passion of teachers to to make people read the great authors that came before them, to, to engage them um, from an inspirational way. And, and, I, and I realized where are, you know, his name was Mr. Keating, I thought to myself, where are the Mr. Keatings of us today in the classroom? Most of the students that I met bemoaned kind of this doldrums of, of the classroom. Of the classroom is just being um, really dominated by technology now. Um, but but if, if I had to really, you know, tell you what is one of the major problems, one of the major problems in our classrooms, and this became evident to me, um, I did an interview with uh, Paul Rossi, who um, used to be a math and philosophy teacher at a private uh, school in Manhattan. And I asked him the very question that you're asking me. I asked him, what is the main problem? And he said, the main problem is that we have put to rest classical education and instead are now practicing what we call progressive education. And that is student-centered learning. So, it breeds this, that, that the student is at the center of every learning activity. So in other words, if I give you a text by Shakespeare, such as you know, Romeo and Juliet, in the old days or in classical education, the student was asked to read the text and analyze it. Today, they say to the student, oh, what does romance mean to you? Um, what does forbidden love mean to you? And the student generates responses, and the teacher dutifully you know, writes them on the board. And then the text is given, and what happens is that the student is not reading the text, but rather making sure that the text is affirming his or her own worldview. So it's, it breeds this kind of narcissistic. They're no yeah. longer discovering people. They're, they're, it's, it's so it's, it's so it's pathologically looking inside oneself to, to such a degree that education was supposed to be about exploring all ideas, and so. If I had to, you know, say what is the main problem, the main problem is that teachers, you know, have been trained by a theorist. His name was Paulo Freire, I believe. And he wrote this seminal book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And so basically the, the goal of all pedagogy is to liberate, liberate students against systems of oppression. And so what you're, what you're doing now is you, you produce a, you know, a cadre of, of citizens whose goal it is to, as Paul Rossi mentioned, fix this, quote, broken world. But that, that's not the job of a student. The job of a student is to learn, is to ask questions, is to push back, mm-hmm. is, is, is to read the great works of literature, to read the history. But, but no, that's, that, that's not what we're doing in our classrooms right now. In our classrooms, we are 
hyper-focused on ourselves, and we read texts in order for them to confirm our own perception of the world. So I want to just backtrack and really do justice to your comparison to Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society, because it's just, Mm -hmm. that's such a great, that's such a great to me starting point. And anyone younger who has not seen this movie, really, it's worth seeing. It's kind of a Gen X classic, uh, you know, coming of age teenage movie. But, you know, everybody can remember that teacher that had that passion, that charisma, that energy that was cooler than the other teachers that just, you know, helped you in some way find something of yourself. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Everybody, I think a lot of us that became teachers uh, were inspired that way. But And I'm going to use English literature as the example. You know, we were always taught that there were uh, the three great struggles, and I'm not going to be politically correct here, as, you know, man against the world, man against other men, you know, or a relationship, and man within himself, the three great Mm -hmm. struggles. And the difference that seems to have shifted is that the great teacher, like, um, you know, Robin Williams plays, and I think a lot of us had helped you find that struggle within yourself and discover who you are and and challenge yourself. Whereas now it's more seeing the oppressed and the struggle is, well, the everything else is bad and I need to insulate and find a cocoon now um, mm-hmm. and, and aff- affirm my identity, which is the complete opposite. It's the complete antithesis of self, self-discovery and all of that. And it's a regression really. It's, it's, totally different not the same at all Mm -hmm. i yes and i would add that you know this again from the interview i did with paul rossi is he talks about what you say self-discovery and they are doing self-discovery but it's about what he calls attaining a sort of um critical self-consciousness so you become really self-aware that your role in this world as a citizen, as a future leader, uh, you know, is it's to, to, to fight the oppression. That's it. That That's as far as this self-discovery goes, is that, you know, we need to fight, you know, climate justice, reproductive justice. I'm not saying that these things are not important, but that is the framework from which the class, in which in which these students in the classroom are quote unquote discovering themselves, they're not really discovering themselves. They're discovering themselves within a very uh, prescriptive framework. So yes, I agree with you. I just I'm just the only thing that I would kind of put a kind of footnote is that a lot of teachers will tell you, well, yeah, I, we're we're doing a lot of self discovery. We but but if they really honestly look at what kind of self-discovery they're doing, it's very prescriptive. Uh, discover yourself and your role to, to fix this as, you know, I'm going to repeat it again, the broken world. That's that's the limit of the, that, that discovery. Mm-hmm. Now, you, it's interesting. You conclude the essay with what you call glimmers of hope. What are those glimmers of hope? So... Um, I recently became introduced or came to be introduced to classical education. And it's a real, it's an amazing, um, really, it's an amazing pedagogy, but it's also a repository of, of just, just amazing texts. Classical education usually, uh, traditionally is anchored in Christian theology. So most classical education uh, is done within a Christian uh, framework. But why I believe that there's glimmers of hope in classical education is because what they're trying to do in many ways is what White Rose Magazine is doing, which is they want to reclaim, again, truth. They want to reclaim virtue. They want to reclaim beauty. and they and, and why I, I think that's important is, is is we live as you you know you said in the introduction today in a world that's many you know there's a lot of chaos there's not a lot of noise some things just are absolutely you know upside down and we've lost you know where is our compass where is our moral compass and so classical education 
is emanates from respect, deep respect for Judeo-Christian values and the birth, you know, the cradle of civilization, and wants to to re, you know, invigorate students by by you know teaching them Western about Western civilization. Um, so that's why I think it's glimmers of hope is because classical education is really once again rooted in. Um, you know, reading the canon, understanding where did, you know, where did our humanity begin to think? So the Greek philosophical tradition, uh, what did people, you know, what did people used to think and how did that, how did the history of thought really evolve? Uh, it's traditional in the sense, um, whereas I think progressive education is very um, reactive and tends to see uh Text is, you know, they want to study texts that are revolutionary, texts that break from tradition. I think that classical education looks at texts within tradition, so within the Romantic tradition, within the French tradition, within the classical tradition, within the Baroque tradition. And I think that's important because here's the other thing, um, is that when I'm, many of the students that I teach, or I, you know, I, I teach a lot of times about Middle Eastern history. And and what I've come across is they don't know geography. Now, it's a basic topic. It's wow. a basic... They don't. They don't know where certain countries... They don't know... What, you know, I've, you, oh, the Levant. They have no idea where that is. They have no idea right. where, what, what, where was Mesopotamia. Um, there's a real gap in knowledge. A real, and it's, it's fascinating because we live in an age where everything's at our fingertips. We have over, overload of information. Yet these students, and by and large, I'm talking about high school students, so ninth through twelfth grade, don't even know continents. <laughs> um, they don't know where countries are located, capitals. And these are important things, I believe. So, class. How is that possible? I mean, with all the apps, with all the the tools that they have at their disposal, how can that happen? Um. Again. I, I don't have a great answer for you, but I'm not so surprised. I mean, I guess I've become desensitized to it. In the beginning, I was surprised. I was surprised that students didn't know. I'm not even talking about countries. We're talking about continents, you know. Um, they didn't know the names of continents. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the reasons, I, I, I can't speak for students in Europe, but I think by and large, American students, lack the same rigor as I think the European students do because I'll tell you, you know, I, I come from another country and my parents are from the former Soviet Union. So that the, the subject of geography was a standalone course um, in, in both elementary school, middle school, and high school. I didn't get that even. I grew up in the 90s, so I didn't get geography as well. So we're not, we're not even talking about today. So it's not that shocking. But a lot of people say that it could be because America is kind of such a ginormous almost island um, on its own between these two vast oceans, uh, the fact yeah. that it only borders with the two countries you know, doesn't necessitate people wanting to know about geography. We definitely are pretty ethnocentric here. I think, you know, we're guilty there. Um, I want to dig deeper on classical education and why you think that is the solution? Well, um, I think it's the solution because classical education is asking a very fundamental question, and that is, what is the birthplace of civilization? Um, what, does, what, what has humanity given to, to the modern man? Um, and to answer that question, Classical education begins with the birth of monotheism. And that's important because monotheism is really what I call ethical monotheism. So, you know, classical education wants to understand how has the history of civilization contributed and shaped and formed man today. That means that you have to really study the history. And if you pick up a textbook from classical education, there is this cohesive um, story being told from the time of 
of the birth of, of ethical monotheism. And, and that, that bleeds into or rather touches it on a second important aspect of classical education, and that is character building. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I attended a conference on classical Jewish education, actually. And um, in attendance, there were two women who uh, I believe were either co-founders of a, a school in Louisville, Kentucky called Highland Latin. Uh, the school was uh, started 22 years ago. And the two women who came, one was a teacher, and the other, I believe, is more on the administrative end. And she pre- they presented to us you know, what is the vision and mission of classical education? Now, albeit it was Christian classical education, um, but one of the things that struck me was that they talked about building of integrity and character, uh, virtue, um, that students in classical education sign honor codes. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody signs honor codes today. Uh, I don't think people even understand what an honor code is. You know, once upon a time, a word meant something. You know, a a person's words meant something. Uh, And so classical education, yes, it's traditional education in the sense that it wants to recover the story of humanity, uh, you know, the birthplace of the, the three monotheistic religions. But it goes even one step further, and that is that they are interested, these educators, these practitioners of classical education are interested in shaping the character virtue and they keep they kept on using the word virtuous or integrity um and Mm -hmm. and and they 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 have this honor code in this school and the students sign you know i you know they gave some examples such as you know uh we read from pages 120 to 67 and you know the signature of a student And, and and there were people in the um seminar or the conference they attended and one one teacher raised his hand and said, "Because how do you know? How do you know that they are telling the truth?" And the teacher and the the women with such confidence said, "It just is because from a very young age, from elementary, from kindergarten, so much emphasis is placed on integrity." Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's what we're we're doing in classrooms today. I think we're practicing no. equity and inclusion and diversity. But what about integrity? That's, you know, virtuosity. Well, and that's why I believe... Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Finish what you're saying. I was just going to say, that's why I believe that it is, a, it is a glimmer, as I say, of hope, is the classical education. So when you say classical education, correct me if I'm wrong, I picture ancient Greece uh, more than, you know, ancient monotheistic things. And, and when you're talking about integrity... It brings me personally back to my my first degree. I was a communication major when we studied rhetoric of Western thought and, you know, arguments centered around ethos, logos, pathos, and you were really taught critical thinking and to construct an ethical argument, a logical argument, and something that had uh, some emotion. So does this relate in any way to all of yes. this? Yes, Absolutely. The classical education, another um, element that I left out is that there's a, a big stress on foreign language, and that is Greek, Latin. So from a young age, the, the students are learning Greek and Latin, and one of the seminal topics that keeps, you know, it, it's not just one year, oh, we did U.S. history one year, European, but it, it is constant, is Greek um, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, it's its one of the biggest anchors of, of classical mm-hmm. education. So in classical education, they talk about something called the trivium, which is the three uh, pillars. Uh, one of them is grammar, one of them is logic, and the third is rhetoric, what you just kind of alluded to. So, and this comes from Greek uh, tradition, the sophists. So, um, so yes, it's very much also uh, shaped by by Greek civilization and and really reading greek drama and and greek uh, philosophy uh, socrates plato greek tragedies yes absolutely well and what's what's so ironic about all of this is that it's really quite uh you know i don't know if the right word is bohemian or progressive but to think holistically to to have that well-roundedness is what classic liberalism always was about um, not seeing things in their own unique silos. And I'm going to geek out with you again because it's always fun to do with you. But 
you know, I remember writing my thesis a long time ago, and one of the things I learned was that the big thing in, we're talking medicine, but it's the same concept, was that the, the ancient Egyptians were very regimented, and it was so groundbreaking that the ancient Greeks really had that more holistic model. And it seems like with the Industrial Revolution, we uh, de-compartmentalized de- things again. And, you know, now we have things in cookie-cutter things. And it's very hard to see that holistic. And as we put it back together as people, if I'm making sense, and as a society, we haven't really put it together quite right. And we have some things in silos. We have some things that we say are intersectional, but we've stitched them up in a bizarre way and we're not really looking at the holistic anymore and then we still have these nightmarish uh things i mean it, it's 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 fascinating to me how much things like this changed after the industrial revolution i don't know if any of your things talked about that but i just just you know things that are ideal for making automobile parts or gun parts or things uniform, okay, that's fine. But doing that to people and human labor, that doesn't work. If a human gets bored, uh, we're not like that. And so we need that well-rounded education. I I remember people talked about liberal arts, get a good liberal arts education. Now I, I feel like it seems like maybe that's frowned upon, um, but then I hear we're going back to that. So can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. I think that you're absolutely right. I think it's interesting. I think in general, if we zoom out and kind of look at trends, trends are born, and then the following trends usually push back on the those that preceded. So I believe that classical education is, is really coming back. There's a growing movement. And the reason is because they're pushing back uh, or the practitioners and believers of classical education are pushing back against what you yourself really well pointed out, which is studying subjects or areas in quote-unquote silos or what I said earlier about reading texts that are revolutionary, that break with trends, Um, this kind of fetishization of of radicalism. And, and classical education as a return to tradition and conservatism, conserving those traditions. Uh, I think that, you know, as the pendulum keeps on swinging, probably in the future, in the you know, next 50 plus years, probably there will be another pedagogical movement that will, you know, push against classical education. But one of the reasons classical education is really um, kind of flourishing in many ways and, and there's even now interest in building classical Jewish education um, is because it's pushing against a, uh, a trend that preceded it, which is this idea of what we call progressive education, the student-centered uh, classroom, the radical text versus the traditional text. Um, and mm-hmm. and it, interestingly enough, I don't have the exact source, but at Princeton University, between the years of 2014 and 2000, I believe, 19, there was a big dip in students studying, as you say, liberal arts, uh, majoring in in these subjects. Uh, You know, STEM is is very, very popular. Uh, There's a lot of money, government money, um, and, you know, universities are are also putting a lot of money behind STEM. Liberal education, the humanities, people don't see the value in it anymore. Um, and, and again, classical education wants to celebrate the humanities. Um, but the, it's a bigger conversation as to what are the undercurrents? Why are people not, in, you know, not majoring in certain humanities as they used to? Because you're, you're absolutely right. You know, when I went to college, I majored in modern literary studies, and it was a really popular major. When I was in grad school, um, albeit I was, you know, in the Slavic languages and literatures, which is a small department, Russian literature. But by 2012, I was already finishing up my, my graduate uh, degree. There were rumors that the university was going to basically stop funding French department, uh, Russian department, um, German department, and that they were going to have to just come together because, wow. again, so few students, we're not even just, I'm not talking about majoring, but enrollment in classes was going down. Yeah. 
Well, do you think there's a relationship between, on the one hand, all the really just hardcore technical STEM subjects, and then is, is it, you know, in any way kind of the pendulum swinging to another side, all, all this, the ethnic studies and all of these different things where we know a lot of the anti-Semitism has been breeding on college campuses. Is is that a reaction? The left brain and the right mean? brain? Um, uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'm not. I'm not 100% certain. It's a good question. I'm not sure. It all becomes even more complicated by by another element, which is now we are dealing with AI, Jet GPT, which can really just can create amazing essays. Now they can write. They can do rhetoric. I'm sure they can do logic. They, it, whatever. So, so that that's another element that is taking over the humanities. Yeah, that's that's going to change everything. Um, and, and you know, it's interesting with the scientific method. That's supposed to be so scientific, and yet people are saying that's racist. Um, and I mean, that to me is a very interesting thing to to look into. Maybe you guys yeah. can get into that sometime because it, you know, it, it it's controversial. It was not a holistic thing, as I understand it. They they it was controversial at the time and it really leaves out about 10% with medicine particularly <laughs> if you're in the 10% of people that are not you're different from the norm and you're told well this is the norm you're getting screwed by the scientific method is <laughs> essentially mm-hmm. the way the way I've understood it so I, I, does that in any way tie in with classical education from your perspective so I'll be completely honest with you and your listeners. I haven't explored classical education in the realm of the sciences, but I could tell you that this, again, the way that classical education tells the story of humanity, it doesn't pit people against one another. You know, it, it's not about black versus white, heteronormative versus LGBTQ+, um, colonizer versus indigenous. Uh, West versus the East, Oriental versus the West. I mean, Europe. It's not about being Eurocentric. It's it's really kind of this holistic look, a traditional look at the at the continuous story of of the of of, of humanity of of people. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure that detractors or people who would have serious issue with classical education could say, you know, very Eurocentric uh, curriculum. Uh, why is it that civilized? Why is it that that classical education puts so much emphasis on Western civilization? What about the East? And and that's a legitimate criticism. You know, it's a legitimate criticism. But you can't deny that. Again, for me, the three major monotheistic religions really shaped Western civilization: Christianity, mm-hmm. Judaism, Islam. It's especially Judaism and and Christianity. So and and they were born in the Levant. They were born in the Middle East. So, again, to answer your original question, I haven't looked into the sciences in classical education. I was mostly interested in the pedagogical approach. What is the curriculum anchored in? So that trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And then how do they tell the story of the historical narrative and humanities, the humanities, the literature? That, for me, is what I was exploring. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you mentioned your interview with Paul Rossi. Um, I don't know if all of our listeners know who he is. He's a pretty prominent voice and one of the first to really ring the alarm bells about what's happening in K-12 to classrooms. Can you elaborate a little on that? Sure. Yes, I was introduced to him by a former colleague, and... It was a, one of the most fascinating conversations I've had. So, so Paul Rossi, as you rightly mentioned, is a pretty big uh, name, uh, kind of a, a whistleblower in the space of progressive education. I mean, he taught at Grace Church School in Manhattan, and he taught the subjects of mathematics and philosophy. And his story goes is that there was some uh, mandatory training, DEI training, that he did not want to participate in. There was also... DEI seeping into the classroom. We can discuss that later. Um, and 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 so he refused to, to to do this this mandatory training. And so they 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 asked him. They said, "Look, if you don't do this, you're you're not 
you're not going to be able to work here. And and he's a very courageous man because he basically, I guess, got laid off because he refused to participate in this mandatory training. And ever since then, he has been really writing about this, really using his voice on social media. He's been on Barry Weiss. No, I think he wrote for Barry Weiss's um, The Free Press um, online uh, mm-hmm. source. And, um, and, and, and I believe he's right now putting, to, he's the COO right now of Terra Pharma, which is an organization that's looking to place teachers into schools, teachers who are trained in classical education, teachers, you know, the Mr. Keatings of this world, um, teachers yeah. who went into it for the reason to inspire, to teach, to, to, to do that. So it, it's almost like a, rec- I guess they're like a recruiter company, but that's what he's doing now. And so I, I sat down with him mainly because he comes from this world of, of being a teacher. He saw firsthand, he witnessed what he described to me as two major problems. One is, we spoke earlier a bit about it, which is the student-centered classroom. And the other one is the emphasis on gaining critical self-awareness aspect. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, even though it's like a the dark ages for a lot of teachers with some of these movements that are forcing them out, there's also a bright spot in that we're really seeing a resurgence of education pop up in in a lot of interesting ways where, you know, good teachers are teaching other teachers. And I I have a lot of faith that you guys are reclaiming it in some good ways. Um, I want to switch a bit now to just discuss an essay in your issue that this deals with academic freedom, and that's Arthur Wilner's The War on Academic Freedom. Something that he writes in this piece was intriguing. He says that protecting free speech is less about the speech than about power. What does he mean by that? So he's an attorney, and he's really interested in the second, uh, in First Amendment, excuse me, and looking into that violation that's been happening, the rather the erosion to freedom of speech happening at universities. What he's talking about when he says that protecting free speech is less about the speech than about the power is who is in power. The universities are being run over in many ways by diversity, equity, inclusion officers. These are, this isn't you know a, a volunteer position. These are professionals. There's now master's degree programs in DEI. There's certificate programs in DEI. There's even certain schools are mandated to have a DEI officer. And these DEI officers hold the power, and they're the ones deciding what constitutes freedom of speech and what doesn't. So that's that's what he's talking about there. Yeah, I think that's a really a really timely point. And your issue concludes with a pretty powerful piece that you co-authored with Ben Poser, who's the senior editor at White Rose Magazine. And you asked the question, also another provocative question, what if the Holocaust was not about hate? What if the Holocaust was not about hate? So what do you mean by that? Right. Well, interesting enough, we, uh, it's my first time ever co-authoring something. So the original title of that piece was actually, What if the Holocaust was not about racism? And uh, we went back and forth and we changed it to what if it was not about hate? And and it is a bit provocative and strange but what we're trying to get out there is that what if the Holocaust has been completely misunderstood and universal, okay, misunderstood because it has been universalized and treated just as a story of hate, a story about intolerance, a story about the dangers of othering and other people. Mm-hmm. What we argue in that essay is that the Holocaust is a is a is a chapter in the long story of anti-Semitism. It's, it's about anti-Semitism. It's a very particular event, and it has to do with Jews. In that essay, we really detail, we looked at the United States of America, and we looked at particularly a few states. We looked at the state of Illinois that mandated Holocaust uh, education. And, you know, interestingly enough, when Holocaust education was first introduced in the state of Illinois, and I believe it was in 1990, if I remember correctly, when it was first introduced, I actually went and consulted the curriculum 
And I was shocked to find that the original curriculum was very much, I wouldn't say celebrated, but very much acknowledged the particularity, very much acknowledged, you know, what was the final solution? Why were Jews the target? You know, what happened to the Jews? Why were there collaborators? And in 2005, there was a new mandate in Illinois, in the state of Illinois, that said that the, now the curriculum has to include it can't just be about the Holocaust. It has to be Holocaust and genocide studies and must include a comparative analysis. And that, in many ways, you know, the early 2000s, late, late 90s, is in many ways when you can date the universalization of the Holocaust, which has been detrimental to learning about the Holocaust. Because, you know, I think that people don't even know what the Holocaust was about. They don't know that it was about targeting Jews. They know that it was probably, a, 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 you know, a genocide, if they know that. But, but that, sorry, I, I get sidetracked. But you, you know, you asked the question, you know, what if the Holocaust was not about hate? Well, obviously it was about hate, but it was about a very particular form of hate known as anti-Semitism. But if you look at many Jewish organizations that are at the forefront of creating curriculums, creating educational programming about the Holocaust, they tend to universalize it by talking about pyramid of hate, by talking about the Holocaust as a form of, you know, intolerance and, and genocide. That is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And so that's what we did. We explored in that essay, why hasn't Holocaust education worked? And we know it hasn't worked because Ben actually found a study from early 2000s where basically over 60% of millennials don't even know what the Holocaust was about in states where Holocaust education is mandated. So what's happening there? Right, right. Now, you're, did I hear you say 2005 is when something was mandated that specifically changed Yes, in the state things? of Illinois. Yes, just while well, I'm talking about this, we looked at the truth of the matter is that this this essay should really be expanded because we you know because of time constraints and also word count um we couldn't do a you know deep 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 dive into the history of holocaust education in the United States of America so we looked at different states and we looked I looked particularly at the state of Illinois because it was the first state to mandate holocaust education and it was one of the first states also to introduce a second mandate which was to include other, so in other words, if you teach about the Holocaust, you can't just teach about the Holocaust. It has to be comparative right. genocide now. I think Chicago, uh, Illinois is a good place to study that because you really get a good sampling of a lot of America there. And I know I've discussed this with other people on the show too, Jared Tenney as well. A lot of people increasingly are saying that our Holocaust education has sadly failed. I think Dara Horn wrote, a scathing article about it that was mm-hmm. just spot on. Um, so the question I have, because I agree with you, but what metric do we use to judge this exactly? Is it just that, you know, the lack of awareness or the percentage of Holocaust deniers, or is it something um, more substantial we can use on specific to education and educators? Because there are educators, we recall the principal down in Florida that, was uh, teaching both sides of the Holocaust, you know, and um, oh, yeah. he was fired not not once but twice, but I think he got back pay and some sort of crazy drama with all of that. So so what what is our metric? How do we judge whether Holocaust mm-hmm. education is succeeding or not? I mean, it seems like at some point people severed the relationship between anti-Semitism studies and Holocaust education and just, again, the death of the holistic model, you know, just put them in their silos. I don't know if that's a generational yeah. chism or a, or a cross, you know, transatlantic chism. There's, there's all kinds of things that could innocently explain it and maybe some not-so-innocent things. So how how do we prevent that? What, what metric is used? Great question. So I'm going to answer it. Uh, a few ways, but I'm going to start with the way that we started this essay. So in many ways, the origins of this essay for me, I can't talk for Ben, was a 2018 experience that I had, which was I, by accident, found myself 
in a Jewish day school, just perusing the lobby. And uh, it was around November 2018, and they had a really big display honoring Kristallnacht, or in the, in the memory of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht happened in November. And um, the project was called We Will Not Be Silent. So I came closer to it. I approached it, because from far away, it just looked a little strange. I saw Kristallnacht, and I saw We Will Not Be Silent, and, and, I, and I, I approached this wall and what I saw upon it was very alarming speaking of metrics okay so on that wall were stickers that students were given the the sticker said I will not be silenced in the face of colon and then they wrote what will they not be silenced in in the face of what as a result of kristallnacht and the answers Mm -hmm. were rape culture gun violence environmental degradation any hate sexism and homophobia. And those are just a few. Now, there were hundreds. And I remember I had this strangest thought. I thought, why didn't one student write anti-Semitism, the reason that Kristallnacht happened? What happened pedagogically in the classroom to generate these responses? So when you speak of metrics, that is a, yes, it's anecdotal, but that's a metrics that's alarming. Here we have a, a school, a Jewish school, that's devoting their time to studying or honoring the memory of Kristallnacht, but students are walking away thinking that Kristallnacht, because of Kristallnacht, they won't be silent in the face of rape culture. Not one student wrote the word Jew hatred or anti-Semitism. So, yeah, and, and that goes back to your earlier point of, of they flipped it and they've made it all about the person and their internal identity instead of really being uh, a holistic citizen's aware of others, you know, and although ironically, a lot of Jews that, that observe to Kanalam still do that. So, you know, it's very hard to play by one set of rules in the world when everyone else is playing by another. Absolutely. It's a really interesting point. I think that's really good. And the other is a little bit more um, subtle metrics, and that is you have a person who, for example, will condemn the Israelization of American domestic policy will call Israel and a colonial state guilty of terror, waging a war against civilians. And that same person, and that person, by the way, is Edward Said, writes the following. Mm-hmm. It is, quote, it is certainly true that one can universalize truth about the Holocaust, and that is there is a value in seeing analogies and perhaps hidden similarities between it and the Palestinian disaster. Did this, so, so obviously, you can't say that this individual doesn't know about the Holocaust. But here, the me- the metrics is we've universalized it to such a degree so as to render its particularity completely useful. It's, 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 now it could be we could talk about the Holocaust of these people, of that people, Holocaust inversion, which is what basically one of the features of anti-Zionism according uh, or anti-Semitism according to Ira is, is is saying that Israel is guilty of of the Holocaust. But but of course, you could see why that could be generated because you've universalized it to such a degree you can't even identify its particularity. Yeah. We, we've been talking a lot about Edward Said lately with uh, Richard Landis this month and Naomi Friedman and Tammy Rossman Benjamin on my show. And, you know, it, it, it's to, to a non-academic. Uh, it's really simple gaslighting. It's It's like collective narcissistic abuse where where the Jew can do no right, uh, Israel can do no right, and, um, you know, this golden child, everything is is designed to be, whether it's media coverage or anything else, designed to mm-hmm. favor the Palestinians. And, 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 and nowhere is that more true than today, as we're speaking, bombs are going off in Israel, and, you know, the front page report is not on the over... 500 as of this moment, rockets that have been fired, but of what Israel did in retaliation. So it, it's mm-hmm. uh, to the larger point of the of the narcissism of that. It's it's very disturbing when you're teaching academic and identity narcissism. We've come such a long way from those original ideals, ethics, I, and I, integrity. I I love how you just basically summed up Edward Said, which is, he's, he's, 
the master of gaslighting. Absolutely. Absolutely. If I may, I just want to say, you know, his, he catapulted onto the scene with his book, um, Orientalism, or the concept of Orientalism. And, for, and, 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 and I was already, I think I was in grad school at that time, and everybody was just, wow, this is just groundbreaking. This is an, an amazing book, this, this concept that the West, we have, or we in the West have fetish, fetish, fetishized the, the East, that we with our Western gaze have colonized just by gazing at the, at the, at the Orient. Yeah. And it, it, it's, a, it's a crazy idea. It's a crazy idea because what eyes do you want the West to have? They're guilty of having what, I mean, it's, it's an insane idea. It's, and what eyes does the Orient have when they look at the West? Are they guilty of orientalizing the West? I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. Well, it seems to me, you know, that it seems to me that Edward Said has fetishized the Holocaust. And mm. I'm always fascinated when I talk to people from the former Soviet Union like yourself and Masha Merkalova and others. I mean, you guys have the laser sharp antenna. Like you pick up on this so much faster than, you know, people who have lived their entire lives in America because he basically supplanted the old Soviet hatred of Jews mm-hmm. and, and brought it into academia but laundered it. So to me it would be it would be really wonderful if an academic or maybe someone like you, Naya, um could could take Edward Said and sort of present it in um in a way that helps the average person understand how this is hijacked, because, I mean, it's a wonky subject, but it's a necessary subject um, mm-hmm. for people to understand how we how we got here. But, you know, I, I use the narcissistic uh, triangle analogy because that's, that's like pop culture now, and everybody gets it. And, you know, I don't know if, if, if it, you know, lands, but, but it sure makes sense, at least to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, you're right. And, 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 and Edward Said now is his writings are seeping into high schools. By the way, no, yeah, yeah that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you also included a podcast by James Lindsay on the Marxification of the Church. Why did you include that? And can you also explain who uh, James Lindsay is uh, for those who don't know? James Lindsay is actually a mathematician, <laughs> and. Um, a very interesting man, and he wrote a book not too long ago. Uh, the book is called The Marxification of the Classroom, and it is a really important book for anybody who is scratching their head wondering, why is my kid being taught to denounce his quote-unquote guilt of being white? So James Lindsay looks at the influence that Paulo Freire and particularly his book, uh, 1970 book, Pedagogy of the Press, has had on higher education. But in particular, he's, he's interested in documenting or rather tracing how are teachers being trained or th- those who are getting their master's and PhDs in education. And they're being trained by a theorist who is a Marxist. I mean, Paulo Freire was, is a Marxist. He very much influenced by Marcuse, who who was of the Frankfurt School, also a neo-Marxist school in Germany. Um, everything in the world is should be viewed through the lens of the oppressed and the oppressor. And so I really wanted um, James to write a, a piece for this um, particular issue, but he was very, very busy. And so I said, well, can I browse through your podcast? And maybe we can have our, uh, you know, because it's digital, we can have our readers also get a glimpse of what you're working on. And so something that he's also working on is not only how Marxism has influenced education, something else that he's looking into is how Marxism is influencing Christian education and the church. And I was, I mean, if you listen to that podcast, it's shocking. Uh, Churches are now basically espousing Marxist values, many churches, not all churches, but it's basically coming into the church as well. And I wanted our listeners to have not just, uh, I didn't want to just explore, let's say, you know, issues of anti-Semitism or the Holocaust or um, what's happening in, in academia. I wanted to, to, to have a really wide selection 
so people could see that this threat, threat to truth, to, to, to beauty, to, to reason, is now seeping into in another institution, and that is the religious institution, of, and that is the church. And we could say very similar things about the synagogue, but I was interested yeah, in particular in say. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so, I definitely. I mean, really, in a way, COVID was a blessing in disguise for some people who maybe now have a better idea of what's going on in school systems. I mean, you know, uh, but what, if you could give one piece of advice for parents about education, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And also, if you could give one piece of advice for teachers, what would it be? Sure. So um, I want to just say that you are absolutely correct. In many ways, COVID was in a blessing in disguise because for the first time, I think parents, including myself, and I'm a parent, got front row seats into what's happening in the classroom. Um, and And we were all scratching our heads and some were alarmed. And so, yes. Uh, my advice to parents, it's very simple. No, be in the know. Ask to see what your child is reading. Ask to see the homework. Make an appointment with the teacher. Um, read what they're right. Cause, you know, they, by law, they have to, and they do. They send weekly, you know, um, summaries of, you know, newsletters, fourth grade newsletters, fifth grade newsletters. Read it, but read it with your antennas, Right. Read it with your antennas activated, those antennas that you spoke about earlier. You know, if you look at the letters and, for instance, if they start using a lot of, you know, our, our, oh, we had a wonderful assembly this week on diversity, inclusion, and equity. I would ask, what was the assembly on? What did you guys discuss? Who presented? So basically, be in the know as a parent as much mm-hmm. as you can. And for teachers, a difficult, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult topic because I would just say to teachers, remember the, the the ones who went for the reasons that I did. Remember why you went into teaching, um, mm. and, and watch Dead Poet Society. I think Dead Poet <laughs> Society yes, it's going to reinvigorate, re-inspire you. Um, I feel bad sometimes, you know, for teachers, especially who work in in classrooms, ginormous classrooms with 40 kids, public schools, inundated, um, also inundated by perfunctory administrative tasks. Yeah, it just, I couldn't help it. You know, I went, yes, I have a son, he's in fourth grade. I went to a parent-teacher conference and it was 10 minutes and she, she kept on looking at her clock to make sure, you know, those 10 minutes were being used and she did exactly what she was supposed to do. She checked off, you know, Opening remarks, closing remarks, et cetera, et cetera. For me, you asked me, you know, what advice I have for teachers. I'm speaking to the teachers that went into teaching because they love to teach. I don't know what advice I would give to teachers who went for another reason. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, when it's so bureaucratic and it's a checklist instead of really it being, I think you need an intuitive element to teaching and and you know so much of communicating is listening and and there's many ways to listen to a child in in a classroom so uh, it's also i think hard uh, it's got to be hard for teachers to see their own kids getting failed in school for sure finally many readers may miss this but your issue on education also features a poem by Yehuda Amachai if i said that right in a digital mm-hmm. exhibit called Revenge My Misinterpretation. Tell our listeners a little bit about why you chose this poem in the digital exhibit. Um, so there were many poems that I was looking to towards uh, reading that would capture what I love about, one of the aspects that I love about education. And two, Yehuda Amichai is, you know, an Israel national poet, was or remains really. And it's, it's a short poem, but, you know, just if I may, it just begins with, I passed by the school where I studied as a boy. And so it's this person who's now an adult remembering the innocence, remembering the classroom. And it, it ends with that everything that he was taught in the classroom, he is now being able to to use outside of the classroom. So the classroom has moved beyond those walls, uh, beyond, as he says, the schoolyard, the narrow schoolyard, the paved large stones. 
now the classroom is Jerusalem. Now the classroom is his life. Uh, I found the poem to be very, very um, beautiful in its totality of an, an adult remembering his school days. Uh, all of us do. We remember our school days, uh, sometimes vividly, sometimes, you know, begrudgingly. Um, but there's something about that poem that that um, that hit kind of this beautiful idea of, of the, that innocence of school and learning. But the more interesting, more beautiful part of it is that now, as an adult, he sees that all the things that he learned within those walls of the classroom he can use outside. So I thought that was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's the poem. And then we had a really interesting, cool exhibit by Benjamin Marcus called Revenge by Interpretation. And um, I'd love your listeners to go and look at it because what he has put together is a digital exhibit of what once hung in, in the ivory tower in many ways in universities and what do we have today. Uh, it's, you know, once we valued beauty, virtue, truth, again, now if you look at the art, it's all about deconstructing truth, deconstructing beauty. Now the ugly is beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why we, we included that because that's the issue. That's that's kind of where classical education also becomes um, a, maybe a panacea, but maybe to rectify this. It's not very great, I think, moment in civilization where we glorify the ugly, glorify the that which is not sanctimonious. Um, or psychologist, yeah. I would say. So it's a really interesting exhibit. And what's cool about it is that he's particularly looking at, at, at artwork that used to hang in universities and now what we're looking at. So I'll have your listeners just, I, that's just my kind of tease for the listeners because they'll be shocked to see what hangs now in Yale, Princeton, and uh, Oxford, just to give a few examples. Hmm. It's such an illuminating discussion, and I think people have heard enough to want to definitely read all the essays in this amazing issue and and watch the movies. I wanted to ask you if you've ever seen um, Julia Roberts in Mona Lisa Smile. Uh, no. That's enough. Check that out. It's sort of um, it takes mm. place in this in the 60s. I want to say, but it's it kind of is about that same tension back and forth between individuality versus I'll just call it the group think of the time which the group think of the time can change decade to decade and you know she's the free thinking like like Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society she's the the one in an all girls school liberating minds there and it's it really takes those magical teachers like that we need that and i think that this is what your edition of White Rose Magazine is really celebrating this month is getting back to basics with all of that. So I want to thank you so much for your time with us today. We always love discussing education with you. And, you know, it's one of the most sacred pillars of civilization. So so what's next for Dr. Nihilette? Yay. So speaking of back to basics, uh, so a few things is next. I'm so excited. First of all, I'm, I'm continuing my work with ISGAP as a research fellow, and I'll be going to Oxford this summer and um, talking about anti-Semitism, but also introducing or training uh, scholars on how to put a curriculum together as professors. So I'm really excited to continue doing that. But speaking of going back to basics, I am also really excited that because of the Jewish TV channel, I will be having my own show, Israel Reconnected, Jewish History, the way it ought to be taught with me. And so we are going to be basically going back to basics, you know, who are the Jewish people? Where do they come from? And, and, and I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do in this, in this show is educate people. Uh, I believe that you know, we're back to education, right? That's my my North Star is teaching and education. And I'm just so grateful the Jewish TV channel, you know, is, is hosting so many different voices, um, so many different experts, so many people with passion and love for different subjects. My happens to be the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, Jewish history and Zionism. And so I will will be featuring the show in June so, and it, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about that. And I will be continuing to teach online classes on the 
Arab-Israeli conflict, Zionism, and anti-Semitism. And I'm working on my book. I'm also working on a book on uh, basically reclaiming Jewish education. I've been working with my editor on that. Wonderful. So all exciting we things. Are, absolutely. And we are excited for your new show. And um, it's going to be wonderful. I've seen a little bit of it already. And it's just, just great. And I keep sharing your voice. And this such a good light to give for other people and to ignite other educators. And I really love what Karen and all of the contributors for White Rose Magazine are doing. Um, you guys are really shining a light in some dark places. So keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I love being on your show. So thank you. You're welcome. We love having you too. Well, that's it for this special edition of Talking Point. Definitely check out this month's edition of White Rose Magazine and keep up with Naya and all her new exciting offerings by visiting jewishtvchannel.com slash Naya Lecht. Also, don't miss our next edition of Talking Point, where I'll be interviewing Rabbi David Wolpe and Pastor Dumasani Washington on leadership in contemporary times, building bridges between the Jewish and black diasporas, and what we can learn from the golden era of King David. For Jewish TV Channel, I'm Laura Kessler. See you next time.